welcome to this Business of Music and Poetry podcast, where the life of a creative meets the real world. I'm Michael Amade, host of World Poetry Open Mic, the Michael Amade Show, author of more books than I should mention, poet, musician, and above all, creative entrepreneur. My collaborator and conspirator on this project is Clifford Brooks, founder of the Southern Collective Experience, host of Dante's Old South on NPR, poet, the author of The Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics, Exiles of Eden, and Athena Departs, A Gospel of a Man Apart. Our guest today is Zoe Fishman. Zoe Fishman is the critically acclaimed author of Invisible as Air, Inheriting Earth, Driving Lessons, Saving Ruth, and Balancing X. In this conversation, we talk about writing, we talk about daily habits, we talk about the PR part of the job of writing. We also talk about being a parent and dealing with these day-to-day concerns of raising children and also being a creative artist. For these reasons, I thought this was a very impactful interview, and I really hope you find something that you can take away from it. Without any further ado, here is Cliff Brook and my interview with Zoe Fishman. Well, today we have Zoe Fishman, who is the best-selling author of Inheriting Edith, Driving Lessons, Saving Ruth, and Balancing Acts. Her writing has been published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as part of their Moving Personal Journeys series. Zoe worked in the New York publishing industry for 13 years. She was recently the visiting writer at SCAD Atlanta and currently teaches at Emory's Continuing education at the Decatur Writer Studio, where she is also the executive director. She lives in Decatur, Georgia, with her family, and today she is here with us. Zoe Fishman, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me tonight. Now, the book we're going to be talking about, at least in part here, is Invisible as Air. And I got it yesterday, and I've already started to read it. And I, I told you a little bit earlier about um, the succinctness and the... And the uh, the relatability of the dialogue. And it's something that. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, again, I think I've said before that I think I'll never flatter you. Cause I think that's just the nicest way to lie to somebody. <laughs> um, but, but your the, 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 the dialogue is, is so natural. And, Thank you know, between the, between the three characters in this book and before we get into all this, I mean, I really want to start at the beginning. What was this seminal moment? What inspired you to write invisible as air? So I was really fascinated by, and continue to be fascinated and depressed by the opioid epidemic. Um, I had a minimal experience with myself. You know, I had two sons. When I left the hospital, I was given Percocet prescriptions for the pain. Um, Luckily, I wasn't in that much pain, but I sure did love those pills. Right. And... (laughs) I understood that if I had immediate access to them, it would be a real problem. So I kind of, uh, the opioid epidemic was not mysterious to me. I could certainly understand how and why it had started. And I was mostly terrified by the fact that a lot of these cases begin with a doctor's prescription. So they're legal. The doctor tells you they're fine. Um, and sure, they help with the pain, but they also just erase mental anguish. Um, 
And I know, especially the state of the world today, mental anguish is um, part of the course for most of us. So I really wanted to, that was my jump off point. And then I wanted to show a family, an upper class family. And I wanted to show how this drug knows no socioeconomic strata. It doesn't care about class, doesn't care about race. Um, And also how, you know, the access of these upper middle class white people was, you know, bar none. This woman could get them when she wanted them. And when she couldn't, she went to extreme measures as the addiction kicked in. And I also wanted to talk about grief. Um, I thought that was an interesting motivation for Sylvie, the main character, um, to become addicted to an opioid. When it's, it intrigues me when, when, and I think that unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, to write effectively about addiction, that you, you've either got to know something about it intimately or with someone close that you've loved. Mm-hmm. Um, when you wrote about it, did, did you ever feel those old demons perk up? Did the, 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 the need come up when you got sure. back in the headspace? I mean, I think that I am, I could very easily be an addict. Um, I think that's part of my uh, makeup. Um, I never met a drug I didn't like or didn't try, to be honest with you, in my 20s. But for one reason or another, I was able to pull myself out of those holes before they did any real damage. Um, And so I kind of understand that mentality, understand the beauty of escape um, until it's no longer beautiful in any way, shape, or form. And I also... You know, I was a huge fan of that show. Um, I always forget the name of it. It was on A and E about addicts. It's still around today. Intervention. Yes, I was about to snatch that yeah. out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's changed. The format has changed, but back in the day, I was just fascinated by it. Thought it was really well done. And in, it's the the warning in Invisible as Air. You, you pick up on, and and I and I, I mentioned this because the the I never want to get on air without asking you first and be like, so uh, you had a drug problem, right? Or did you get close? <laughs> so I, I'm glad we got that out of the way first. Um, it, it's if you don't, if I could tell having, having had issues myself that the, the deeper context of like, she knows what she's talking about. Like it, it, it's, it's endearing. Yeah. It's endearing to someone who identifies with that struggle, but it's not so blatant that if someone doesn't know what that's like, they disconnect. Well, that has nothing to do with me. It's the, the universal appeal that you're talking about. It's, it could be easily be anybody. Oh, yeah, and I've talked to so many, uh, mostly women, um, in book groups who said, God, you know, when the book started, I was on board. I wanted some of these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, Before things got really, really twisted and dark and sick. Um, but it, it, yeah. follows, it follows the food chain of addiction. It does. I mean, it does. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know exactly what it's like. And if you don't, you've, you've had your te- wisdom teeth pulled or something. Where, mm-hmm. like, I remember that. And you gotta make it, you've got to make it delicious before you want to taste it. And then oh, show, yeah. And then to show that train wreck that comes after that just one time. Yeah. You know? And I especially, I wanted to show a working mom. Um, I'm so, I'm not a fan of this whole lean in philosophy mantra. I think it's out of hand. I think that a lot of us feel that we have to lean in so far that we 
eventually end up falling on our face and breaking our noses. I mean, right. you can't have it all, and that's okay. And um, that pressure that I know as a working mom and now as a single mom, I feel, is absolutely overwhelming. You know, I mean, honestly, I have nothing for that. Like, I mean, it's like it, yeah. it's, it's anything that I've got to complain about. It's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I got, I got it pretty good. And, it, and, <laughs> and, it, and, and, and I'm serious. I don't know. I mean, it's like, thank you, I guess. But at, at the same time, um, you know, like how you, you've always made your family such a focal point in in the bios when I've done research on you, and and it's 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 more than endearing, and, it, and it's genuine. Genuine is what I'm going for, and. And again, and I guess that's when you when you speak about your philosophy that way. It, it do you find that 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 deep connection and sentimentality in, in all the books that you've written? The reason why you're so popular is because you can bring out that depth in your characters. Um, well, that's kind of you to say. Um, I have always been fascinated by the dysfunction in families. Um, I am. You mentioned my dialogue, um, and thank you for that. That's where I'm most comfortable on the page, and I've always been that way. I've always had an ear, you know, kind of like a parrot listening yeah. to other people speak. Um, and a lot of times when I'm writing, I actually speak the dialogue aloud to make sure that it flows correctly. Yeah. Um, but I am fascinated by these intimate relationships and the twists and turns they take and the power of family over you to, you know, these people know you better than anybody in the world. So one word from them, um, one judgment um, can send you spiraling or not if you're strong enough to have those boundaries ahead of time. But a lot of time people, people just don't. Um, and I came from a very strong family, um, very involved in my life, but, um, dysfunction i'm not unfamiliar with it so uh that's what i like to write about that's what i like to focus on in my books um for the most part do you have any rituals that you go through like superstitions almost when you when you get into that headspace to write something hmm, no i i have i wake up very early in the morning uh, i wake up at like 4 35 uh, because I have, that's the only time I had to myself during the day before, you know, the emails from the other jobs come in and opportunities, you know, publicity opportunities, um, and then just, you know, the, the job of a mother, um, right. raising two boys. So that's really my only ritual. If I'm not doing that, then I'm not writing um, in any sort of <clears throat> concerted or successful way. Uh, even if, you know, three out of those seven days I write garbage, um, at least I'm sitting there and my my brain is focused on that task. Now, that that leads me to another question. It, it's, it, a lot of people consider themselves either pantsers or plotters. And what I mean by that is that some of them can just sit down and, and, and hit the ground running, and the other ones like to sit back and plot it out and kind of diagram where they're going. Which one are you? Oh, I'm a plotter. I'm like the most unsexy writer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm very much a toolbox person. I start out with a pretty tight synopsis. I boil it down. I write it over and over and over until I see a plot take shape. And then I write an outline. And um, it's very simple. It's very archaic. It's just on paper. It's like chapter, you know, I, I, 
I list out who the characters are and why they're relevant. And then it's chapter one, three sentences, chapter two, and it goes on until the book's finished. So I can make sure that the climax is coming at the right time, the pacing is decent, um, and those are my roadmaps. If I did not have those roadmaps, I could not write a book. And thankfully, you know, a lot of times the outline changes as these characters come to life, which is refreshing because it reassures me that this is art and not just a process, you know, that you can plug into a computer. Um, but I need I need those two things to to complete the journey. Right. It is it the way you build suspense, you know, again, all this makes so much more sense to me. I never feel a, a strictly metered uh, framing or design to how you write uh, paragraphs and especially in the dialogue. But the, I was talking to Carrie, Terry Kay and oh, that sounds so snobby. I was talking to Terry Kay. Name drop. No, but he was talking about and he, he has an exercise where He'll he'll ask you to pull out something that you've written. Let's say it's a workshop, and then he'll put tracing mm -hmm. paper on top of that, and then he'll have you write down through the tracing paper your sentences to kind of. And the lesson is to show you how you can use longer and shorter sentences, or are you using too much of one and not enough of the other to keep the the, the author or the reader going down the page? Uh, you know, reading it out loud and going over it, the the strict editing process. You know, how do you keep a, the reader entranced in what you're doing? How do you keep that pace going? So um, I'm not so much a metered um, structure person. What I do, my first draft is always terrible. And I always tell all my students that your first draft is always going to suck. You should expect that. But it's an <laughs> accomplishment just to get it on the page. Um, what I tend to do, my biggest tick, and it's not really a tick because it ends up serving me, is that there's usually one character that I can't quite figure out. And so instead of spending hours and hours banging my head against the table trying to figure out who he or she is. I usually write secondary characters around them uh -huh. um, in an attempt to get to the heart of who that person is. And it almost always works. In the case of Invisible as Air, um, the husband, Paul, was just a mystery to me. He was flat. I couldn't figure him out. And so in my first draft, he was a member of a grief group. And it was a thing about six men total. And as I edited my first draft, I realized that all of those men were just a, a tool for me to try to figure out Paul. So I killed all of them except for David. Um, <laughs> and that ended up being a much tighter, structurally sound, correctly paced. And it ended up, you know, there's a plot line with Sylvie and David that didn't exist in the first draft. But when I narrowed it, when I narrowed down my focus, that became a clear, um, a clear path uh, for her towards her destruction, and he became a part of it. And as you describe that, I mean, again, you, you've constructed a support group to then kill off. I don't know how to feel <laughs> about that, but <laughs> no, I mean, but the the the, the, the minute detail taken in to, to figure out one character. With such a chaotic life that you that you manage that you, you do well, um, do you find that the the intricacies and the, and the plot designs and the smaller bits and moving pieces of your stories that you compose uh, does that does that kind of help you deal with the chaos in the the really real world? Oh, hundred percent. And I think that it's for it's always been 
you know, writing is the only thing that I've ever been truly confident about since as far back as I can remember the time I first wrote, you know, kindergarten. Um, and it's always been my therapy and it's always been the way that I think things through. And so, especially in, you know, my husband died in 2017 and I had this book to write and everyone says, Oh, how did you do that? How did you? And honestly, I have no idea. I mean, I look back and it's a blur, but that when I was really focused on that book, I was focused on that book and every other second of the day was about grieving, helping my sons grieve, running a household, living this life that I had never, ever, ever envisioned for myself. And so it saved me in a lot of ways. And that actually takes the next question right out of my mouth is that I, when you walked away, when you were finished with Invisible as Air, I mean, did, was there a, did you have a feeling of closure from that healing? I had, yes, it was a portion of my life, as with every book, you know, every book that I've written is, I look it on the shelf and it represents a very specific section of my life. Um, and this one, for so many reasons, is very painful. It's, uh, as I started it, my husband died. As I finished it, my father died. It will always be, um a capsule of pain, but also of triumph. And um, I'm so grateful that I can show my boys that and say, you know, if you're really passionate about something, even when the world <laughs> takes a big dump on your head, <laughs> you can keep going. You can keep going. And it's it's the, the overwhelming feeling of self-forgiveness and the and invisible as air is, is also what i find so attractive because you know i've i've and, and you know again i i kind of get i trip over myself because you know the, the three characters how are you able to, to develop like the, the the child teddy's character i mean how, how and you know how do, how do you get how do you do that i mean it, it fascinates me when people are able to cre create whole people you know how do you do that well, I think that um, I'm probably a little bit nuts. Uh, I, think <laughs> I just really, Teddy to me, and all of these characters, except Paul, who I mentioned I had trouble with, um, I knew them before I started writing. I understood right. them. I knew who Teddy was. I have. I grew up with a brother 15 months older than myself, so we were close, and he's a sensitive guy with a big heart. Um, my husband was also a sensitive guy with a big heart. My sons are sensitive guys. So I kind of feel like I had some insight in that particular male experience. And um, probably at that time, I was, I was, I hope, I feel like I was connecting with my older son. He was only five when my husband died. Um, but I wanted to imagine him at 12. And that was kind of what I came up with. And that, that gave me some hope. You know, something that happens when your partner dies is you, in my experience, you, you have to take it day by day or you'll lose your mind. Yep. Um, and when I would, 
start thinking about my two guys as teenagers, you know, I would just go to the fetal position. I can't do this. (laughs) How am I going to do? I'm going to feed them. How am I going to put them through college? How are we going to do this? And so writing this wonderful little man child into existence um, gave me some hope. Michael Amade, I am hogging this show, man. I'm going to let you ask a question now, but only one. Make it count. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so I, I've been I've been listening quite a bit, and I can understand what you're referring to as far as the the cathartic kind of aspect of of creating. It's it's interesting how even if it's indirect, how some characters we create uh, kind of take on the qualities of the things that we're dealing with in life at that time, or in, even in an indirect way, it may happen. Um, now, not just about this book, but in general, is there, um, have you ever been surprised by a character showing up in the middle of a, the middle of a scene that you're writing? I mean, I know you, you outline, I know you do all that, but have you ever gotten to the writing stage and suddenly something just shows up and you're like, what is happening? But you're, uh, you decide to follow it. Could you, could you talk about, could you talk about if you want to an instance where that happened? Sure. In Invisible is Air, um, there's a character named Morty. And um, uh, Teddy, as part of a bar mitzvah, you do this thing called a mitzvah project where you spend a year giving back um, in order to truly understand what a mitzvah is. And he ends up, uh, Teddy's a big fan of movies, so he ends up running this movie night at a senior citizen home. And this guy... This New York, you know, 80-something-year-old guy just appeared. His name is Morty. Um, And I was thrilled to meet him. I was thrilled to write about him. And it wasn't until my, the book came out, and that was probably four or five months after my father died, that I realized that I was writing Morty into existence as my father was dying. And they have a lot of similarities. Oh, how interesting it's it's a beautiful yeah. thing how that how that happens you know it's a it's yeah a, it wasn't and, conscious well and and you know it seems like it never is <laughs> i think when yeah. it's honest right but it's um mm. and and i think that uh it's probably fascinating as well because i've kind of what to cliff what, what cliff was talking about earlier with the resonance that a lot of your writing seems to have it seems to be that at least in my experience the characters and the the plot lines and the storylines that come out of um, almost that unconscious space, but where we're really living out a lot of our our experiences in life, those seem to be the things that resonate so deeply with others as well. Um, it's when we contrive it, it doesn't work as well. But when it's right, natural, I agree with you. yeah, I agree with you. When you're trying too hard to channel an emotion that you're not familiar with, um, it comes through on the page. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, um, and I, I know I'm asking kind of heady out there questions, but when you're when you're creating something, say you've gone through your first draft and you're reading through it, and as you say, you know, all of our first drafts suck, right? At least we think yes. they do. Um, oh no, do you, they do. They do. <laughs> they do. Yeah, you're right. How, how do you? How do oh, you? Oh no, they do. <laughs> how do you go about? How do you go about thinking about crafting your story into something? tighter i mean what's what is your your mental process how do you view it um i view it as what is serving the plot number one what's just excess fluff fluff that's serving my ego and if 
I find anything of that ilk, I destroy it. What is drive or the motivations of these characters? Am I veering off course in any way? Um, am I rambling? Um, you know, a lot of times as writers, I think we have these moments where we're just so thrilled with our own genius. <laughs> like, yes. oh my gosh, yes. what a beautiful paragraph. Can I can't believe I wrote that. But then you read <laughs> and you're like, this has nothing to do with the book, so, so yeah. yep. get rid of it. Let's move on, you know. Um, I think that the, something I really can't stand when I'm reading a novel is when the author's ego overwhelms the page. It makes me ill. And and it's very blatant when you when you start to become aware of it. Uh, it's oh, very blatant yeah. when you see it. Yeah. So I, and I have to say I love the fact that you use the words um, destroy. You know, you see it, and it's it's not that you edit it out. You destroy no. it, and it's not that you take these characters out; you kill all of them. And I, I, I but I actually really like the, the vividness. Happiness. No, no, I. I mean, I don't just kill them, Clifford. I, I, I feel vindicated. I'm not entertained. Kind of it's, 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 it's a vivid, it's a vivid way of of thinking about it, and I, and I can really. I can really uh, kind of resonate with that. Here's something that I know Cliff and I can't resonate with, but I wanted to ask you about it because um, as a, as you know, a mother who has to take care of these children um, and that, that is such a crazy job. I mean, that's enough to take over anybody's life entirely, even though, you know, yeah. you can't. Um, and I remember hearing about, I think it was uh, Toni Morrison talking about writing at the edges of the day. Um, and that's how she found her time. How so? I know you get up early. Is that where most of your writing is done? Is in the mornings, or do you write? Do you find other times during the day, or do you have these little systems that maybe you put in place that allow you to focus so much? The writing, writing happens very early in the morning. Throughout the day, I will hopefully have ideas and jot those down, but I do not go back to that word document until four thirty the next morning because I I'm not in the right headspace. I mean. First of all, I'm a morning person. Second of all, uh, I'm so tired at the end of the day. There's just, you know, I just need to watch something absurd on television <laughs> let my brain rot. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'll take those ideas, and sometimes they work the next morning. Sometimes they don't. But um, I probably could write at night if I really forced myself. I just am so tired. So, yeah, I go to bed, you know, like 930. And then I'm, uh, and, I, and if I don't go to bed at 930, then I miss the alarm. And then the whole day is screwed. And um, I, and I, miss, I miss that writing time. It's, it's funny because I, I found years ago, and I, it's not because I'm a, I'm a single parent at all. I was actually teaching school at the time. But I found that I was just exhausted from being around children all day. Yeah. So I, I had to start going to bed at 930 and waking up at 4, yeah. 430 in the morning and writing. And I never go back to it after, you know, and it's, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, they'll yeah. take it. They take over, you know, and as they should. You know, I'm mm -hmm. very lucky in that these are good kids. If they were jerks, I really don't know what I would do. <laughs> um, uh, but they are relentless. And their children, and they have my kids have somewhat of a concept of the fact that our lives are harder 
and that it's all on me, largely because I, I have no problem telling them that. But it's still mm. like, I need a snack, I need this, I need that. I'm like, do your arms work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> so do you find that, that what you're going through now in the process of, of grieving, is, is this maybe going to make it into the next book, or is it a project that you've thought about doing? Well, I don't know if you guys read um, my modern love piece, um, so Modern Love is in the Sunday New York Times. It's in the okay. style section. Um, they've recently made it into a TV series. It's also a podcast. Um, it was a tremendous honor. I wrote an essay about how I see my husband and my boys. Um, that came out right before Christmas, that Sunday before Christmas in the New York Times. Right. And I was uh continue to be humbled and amazed by people's reactions all over the world um it's quite an honor to be told that i gave voice to something they weren't able to talk about um so that's all to say that i do it's a two book deal that i have i'm working on my next novel but in the back of my mind i'm wondering if i am interesting enough to write a collection of essays. Um, so I'm just kind of thinking. Um, but I do like the, the novel idea I have. It's, um, it's you know, that movie Wedding Crashers? Yes. So this, move, this book is uh, a takeoff on the Shiva Crashers. uh, (laughs) it features uh, an older man in New York City and a younger woman in New York City and they both are Shiva crashers for very different reasons they become unlikely allies interesting now with uh, back to the invisible as air uh, why did you choose Teddy's the son's bar mitzvah as a plot device well you know I am Jewish and it's a real, I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, heading, well, I'm definitely not heading to services every Friday, that's for sure. But it's definitely part of my cultural makeup. It uh, informs a lot of my humor. Um, I, again, thinking about running two bar mitzvahs for these boys without their father around um, caused me quite a bit of stress, even though they're very young. So kind of writing through it helped me. Um, And I also just, again, that's what I know. Um, I could not write about a quinceanera with with the same type of knowledge of, but I have to do the research, but I'm not sure the heart would be there because I've never experienced it. And it, it comes back to it, there. There are maxims that stick around and, and advice that that I've heard often and, and it heard often and early was the right what you know, and mm. it, it's a passionate debate. And I and honestly, I love to hear your opinion because I share it. And mm. the effect and the fact that if you there are some things I think that that are so deep in developing a character that if you don't know it firsthand, you can't pull it off convincingly. In fact, it comes off at best stale and at worst sexist mm-hmm. or racist. Because it's a caricature, it's a caricature of what you think that is. Um, you know, do you have an example of when you've really had to put some research into a character or an event? Uh, I think no. So I, uh, Invisible Zero is my fifth book. Um, Driving Lessons was my third. Driving Lessons did not sell well, 
Um, and up until that point, I pretty much written exactly what I knew. I hadn't stretched myself as an author and the writing was on the wall that if I did not knock it out of the park with inheriting Edith, I was going to be in big trouble career wise. Right. right. And I knew that to go outside my comfort zone. So I put a lot of research into Edith's background. She was a Broadway dancer in New York in the forties. And then Maggie is a woman of the same age as myself, but very different. First go around, she was as stale as, you know, month old bread, couldn't figure her out. And it wasn't until I dug, dug really deep and, and sprinkled in pieces of myself, not my whole self. Maggie is still not me in any way, shape, or form, um, and was okay and comfortable with the fact that a sprinkle is okay. Doesn't mean that you're cheating. Right. Um, it just makes that character more um, real on the page because you can identify with that part of her personality and that part of what drives her. Or him. Now, did, we like to on this show kind of get around to the business side of writing as well. And you mentioned earlier about um, the pressures of one book not selling well. And if, if uh, Inheriting Edith didn't really, as you said, knock it out of the park, you'll be in trouble. On that side of things, when you, you, you've got your book deal and you've got your contract and you've got an agent, you've got your publicity out there, um, what, what kind of what we what hit you first that you didn't expect once you got into the game of, of publishing traditionally? Well, you know, I worked in publishing for 13 years right. in New York. I worked at uh, Random House, Simon & Schuster, and then I was an agent representing other writers. So I came in as an author with quite a bit of background experience and quite a knowledge, a lot of knowledge about the industry. So I was not, I was not naive. Um, what did I learn? I learned that um, if you, you got to hustle. I mean, you think writing, writing the book is a certain type of hustle, but if you want the publicity, these poor publicists are overworked and underpaid. And if you're not a big shot, you are low on the totem pole. <laughs> right. And you have to hustle, hustle, hustle. You have to send the email, you have to send the letters, you have to bother people, you have to you know, pay for your own book tour. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not glamorous at all. Um, but it's the reality of the business. And, um, that's something that I had never experienced, um, because I had never worked in publicity. So I didn't really understand how that part worked. I thought everyone gets a book tour, <laughs> <laughs> right? No, that's not the case. In, in 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 crafting your publicity and getting out there, do you find it a little bit fun? I mean, the the, the game of it. I mean, it's laborious, uh, yes, but, I hate but like, it. you hate it, really? Well, I, I I mean, I like stuff like this, but social right. media is just the worst, man. 
But isn't it funny, Cliff, that you and I, the more we talk to authors, every time we come across a subject, it's almost about about the exact same kind of response. Like, yeah. I, I have to do it, but man, it's just not the, not my thing. I say that all the time. I mean, we, yeah. we have to be. We have to be. We have these intricate, tiny worlds in our heads, multiple. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And we're all and so, so we're all crazy. We're, we're all we're crazy. All of us. Like, crazy. I'm going to play Cowboys and Indians and get paid money for it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And yeah. it is. And it is. And, and but like, you know, the social media aspect of it. I mean, you know, and I, and I hear what you're saying is. It could be easily time-consuming. Oh, my God, it's a suck. It's a black hole. It is. And and it's useful. It's useful to a a real degree, you know. But um, it's... You know, we've all all got the introverted streak in us. And and those who have... Along my you know, along the journey that I've I've gone on, you find people that are like I've signed the contract. I'm like awesome, and they're like that million dollar check will be here any day now. And I'm like that's not <laughs> you have you have been grossly misinformed. <laughs> um, and it's and, and no one here is saying it like oh this is all terrible. Don't even do it. It's just it's a job. It's, it's a, a job. job. And, and there are many facets to it. And 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 it's not that's not something that should be earth shattering. Or when often when when I don't know if, if you ever get giving talks and it's not being judgmental i don't know why i do that because I mean, whenever somebody says like i'm not trying to be hateful they're about to say something so hateful <laughs> that they might as well just anyway it, it's that that when i when i when i read your read your work and you know and you talk about how you know and, and being an educator and teaching writing do you bring do you, do you bring the aspect of the, the kind of the business side into your creative writing courses like you know, oh yeah are, thank god um, yeah. it is what, what kind of what are kind of the high points you hit with them on the, let's say the, the business side of writing? Oh, I would say first of all, don't get into this for the money. Right, that's a big mistake. <laughs> um, then I say don't write to fill a genre that you see performing well. That's the opposite of being a writer. That's never going to work out well for you. You need to write what you're passionate about, and if it works, it works. Uh, Success-wise, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, what else do I tell? I we talk about the social media uh, and how much of a suck it is, and you know, so many. I have a lot of students who are worried about that out of the gate before even you know three paragraphs are written. And uh, no, write the book and then worry about you know getting your hair highlighted for exactly. your author photo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, I, it's I'm interested. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Decatur Writer Studio and your involvement in it and what they do. Sure. Um, so Decatur Writer Studio is um, a wonderful place here in Decatur, um, city of it's like right off Church Street, right off the square. We mm-hmm. offer just an amazing array of classes, all sorts of teachers. Everyone has been published or is working within the industry. You know, fiction, memoir classes, um, three-hour seminars, six-hour seminars. It's a community. It's a way of making your writing a priority. Um, you know, you pay for this class, then you're going to show up, and you will. I can guarantee that you'll leave feeling revitalized and refreshed and renewed about your project because a lot of time writing just falls to the bottom of our priority list if we have 
another job or kids, you know, it's a hobby. Right. Um, but, but really it's a passionate pursuit and you have to, you have to work on it every day. Outside of the the Decatur's Writer Studio, do you have like a uh, a peer group that you meet with and, and bounce ideas off of? And you like, know, I'm a wimp. I don't have that. I um, I've never had that. I've always been, you know, I have a very different kind of career in that my books, my deals have always been accepted based on um, a very detailed synopsis and 50 pages. Mm-hmm. probably because of the connections I made in the industry. So I write that manuscript and nobody sees it until I'm ready to send it to, well, until my deadline and I send it to my, my editor and my agent at the same time. And, um, you know, occasionally I'll ask uh, a respected friend or my mother who's an avid reader, what do you think about this plot point? And they'll give me some feedback. Um, but for the most part, I'm very tight-lipped, I'm very quiet, um, and I just write it. I just move forward and get it done. Nice. Yeah. Now, and now, I, finding an editor is is a is a is a is an extremely important relationship, and I know mm-hmm. that kind of goes into the duh, duh factor, but like it really is important because they've got to they've got to get you, and they've got to know what you're saying and and be able to pinpoint where you're kind of being foggy on purpose or we were kind of losing the point. How did, how did you find your editor? So you mean my agent or my editor? Well, either actually. I mean, they they talk about both. Okay. So my agent, um, was not the agent I started with my agent. I started with, um, people had recommended her to me. I still live in Brooklyn at the time. Um, I met her. I loved her. She was a shark. I like that about her. She also really appreciated great literature. Um, she worked at a smaller agency. It's called the Foundry Agency. And then she left to go to CAA. And um, a colleague of hers took me on, who I love. And my editor, I've been at Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, since I started. I've been through three editors. Um, and each one I've had a very wonderful relationship with. I, I feel very grateful. Their comments are always on point things I've thought of beforehand. They never push me um, to write a happy ending, you know, like put a bow on this. Um, In this past instance with Invisible's Air, you know, it was the first time I had to ask for extensions because life was insane. And she was very gracious. Uh, Nobody pushed, everybody understood what I was going through. So... Um, yeah, I've been very lucky. I feel like these people are my allies and my friends, um, but not too friendly, you know, just the right amount. Right. And um, yeah, I've been very lucky. When you strip away all the the business and the the stress and the pressures of writing, when you go back to the beginning, what what are those favorite things about writing that you still hold dear that still make it fun? Oh, goodness. Um, When you hit a rhythm and it's a good day and you're just coasting and nothing else exists and you're just in your own head and you hear their voices and it's just coming out on the page, um, that's a phenomenal feeling. I also love the feeling of 
oh God, I'm never going to be able to conquer this plant boy because it's never going to work out. I give up. I hate this. I'm not doing it. <laughs> you go away for a couple of days and you figure out how to work your way around it. That is one of the most rewarding feelings I have ever felt in my life. Um, just feeling like it's impossible and then making it possible. <laughs> we're getting close to shutting down and I always like to ask, it's always a, one of my favorite questions is, is again, the advice, like, you know, there, there's the, the way do you find inspiration, but what's some, what's the advice that you wish someone had told you when you started out? Mm. The advice. Um, don't give up. But I was told that. I was very lucky. I was told that. Um, have five jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just yep. be ready to work all five of them. And know if you really want it, um, put everything you have into all of them and make sure one of them provides insurance. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best advice ever. <laughs> It's creative yet still practical. Um, That's me. That's <laughs> me. Seriously, it's whimsy with enough common sense. Now, you should write these down, though. I'm, I'll give these away to you. For free. Um, but it's uh, it's what do you? How do we keep up with you? Like your tour, tour schedule, readings, these classes uh, with a Decatur mm. writer writer studio. How, how do we? How do we in, in the public keep up with these things? And you? So I have a website. It's www.zofishman.net. I post everything and anything there. Um, Decatur Writers Studio is www.decaturwriterstudio.com. Um, Emory, at this point, I'm only teaching one class. It's the Business of Creative Writing. Um, and you can just go to the Emory Continuing Education website. Uh, Twitter, at Zoe Fishman. Is it Zoe Fishman or Z Fishman? I think it's Zoe Fishman 76 uh facebook yeah I'm, I'm very good about posting things um i'll be in birmingham this weekend i'll be at a wonderful new independent bookstore called thank you books um on sunday at 1 p.m and then i got a bunch of traveling coming up the savannah book fair california florida um i'm looking forward to it and some of it will be Alone without my children. <laughs> you, you don't sound at all happy about that. <laughs> I mean, not even, not remotely. The, the sadness in you makes me want to just walk out in traffic. I really already love. I love you so much. I just need a break. Both Cliff and I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. We want to say thank you to Zoe Fishman for a fantastic and lovely interview. If you want to find Zoe online, you can find her at zoefishman.net. We'll put that link in the show notes. The music for this episode was provided by the fantastic Justin Johnson. You can find him at justinjohnsonlive.com. Until next time, remember to be courageous. Do the hard work. Conquer your obstacles creatively. Learn to trust your heart, for it's easy to lose our path in this business of music and poetry. <laughs> <laughs>